Charles Eliot was the president and then in retirement, president emeritus of Harvard University. During the summer of his 90th year, he made his way slowly down the road from his cottage in Northeast Harbor, Maine, to the cottage of his neighbors, the Peabodys. Mrs. Peabody greeted him warmly and invited him into the living room. And After a brief conversation, Elliot asked if he might hold her newborn baby. Mystified, she lifted her newborn son from his crib and laid him in the arms of the Harvard president emeritus. And Elliot hold the, they held the baby quietly for a few minutes. And then with a gesture of thanks, he returned the infant boy to his mother. And then he explained, I've been looking at the end of life for so long that I wanted to look for a few moments at its beginning. You know, that story is a wonderful reminder that we all need hope, especially in our old age, but also throughout our lives. You know, one of the great blessings that come from children and grandchildren is that when God gives them to us, he entrusts to us a degree of hope. And yet sometimes with those children, there's an uncertain hope at best. By that, we often wonder regarding the uncertainty of disease and death with regards to our children. What parent of a newborn has not gone into the crib or into the room where the crib is in the middle of the night and looked down at that child to make sure that they were breathing? And then if the child survives disease or death, there's always the uncertainty of the evil world that you've brought that child into. There's the issues of crime and child molesters and drunk drivers and the threat of terrorism or war and economic instability. And all of those are things that make every parent worry about that child. What, what kind of world is that child going to live in when he grows up? And so given these uncertainties, it's always encouraging to meet an elderly person like Simeon whose life is filled with hope. And I want to suggest this morning that whenever we see someone like that, we need to sit up and take notice. Because here was a man who easily could have been governed by pessimism and cynicism. He could have had his life filled with fears and anxieties, but When you see Simeon in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, you find that he's a man who's overflowing with hope. And again, when you see someone like that, you and I need to sit up and take notice and see what it is that we can learn from that person. Because you see, Simeon was someone who held the infant Jesus in his arms in the temple courtyard. And he saw in that child hope and encouragement and a a fulfillment of the promises of God. Because that child that Simeon was holding was no ordinary newborn. That child was the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And as we observe this elderly saint with this child in his arms, we can learn some very valuable lessons I want to suggest that we need. If you use your outline, you'll notice that we've put the big idea of this message right there. This is my Christmas gift to you, okay? 
So in case you need to take a nap, you know, you were out late last night with Christmas parties or whatever, you can get the big idea early and then just go ahead and go right to sleep. Just no snoring, please, okay? We don't want you to disrupt your neighbor. But here's the big idea of this morning's message. Those who hope in God's promises will be rewarded. When you put your hope, your confidence, your trust in the promises of God found in the person of Jesus Christ, you are going to be rewarded and you are not going to be disappointed. Now, your Bible should be open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Let me just set the context for you. Mary has given birth to Jesus with the assistance of her legal husband, Joseph. And she's given birth in all places, in of all places, a barn. Uh, on the night of his birth, he's visited by a group of shepherds who received word by an angel who was later joined by an angelic army. And as soon as that Message is given to those shepherds, they immediately hightail it out of there and they go see this wondrous thing that the Lord has made known to them. Given the fact that they've just started their family, a more suitable place is then found for Mary and Joseph to stay. No doubt the innkeeper's wife found out what her husband had done, putting this young couple in the barn that night and she said, you did what? And I can just imagine, I was thinking about this and my imagination ran wild. You know, maybe Mary and Joseph came that night that Jesus was born. They knocked at the inn and he says, I'm sorry, we don't have any room. He was the only one who got up. The wife stayed in bed and he said, look, you know, there's a room for you out in the barn. There, you can at least be sheltered from the, from the elements. And he goes back and he crawls into bed and his wife said, who was that, honey? And he says, oh, just some crazy teenage couple who didn't have the good sense to make a reservation before they came. But I did allow them to sleep in the barn tonight. And the wife says, you're a good man. Maybe she patted him on the cheek. Maybe she gave him a kiss. Who knows? Well, the next morning, she discovers that this woman had had a baby. And I'm sure her husband never heard the end of it. Probably along with all of the ladies of Bethlehem. And so they made sure that Mary and Joseph were, were put in a house. And then eight days later, they leave Bethlehem to make their way to Jerusalem to have Jesus circumcised, and then later for Mary's purification. And then the Magi from the east come Always remember that the Magi didn't show up the night Jesus was born. They came sometime later. And they come and they present their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which enabled Mary and Joseph to escape, use that money to escape to Egypt when Herod was trying to kill the child. And the reason we know, at least from my perspective, that the Magi hadn't come sooner than this is because of the offering that Mary and Joseph gave. When they came into the temple, they gave the offering of a poor peasant. And if they had come into a windfall of money, no doubt they would have given the more appropriate offering, which would have been a lamb. But instead they go in there and they, they offer a pair of doves or two young pigeons. But they go into the temple 
And there they encounter Simeon, who spent his entire life waiting in hope for the Messiah. And what I want to do is I want to suggest that to hope in Christ means, first of all, to live your life righteously. To live your life righteously. Look, if you would, in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. That word righteous means that his behavior in the sight of God and towards his fellow man was in accordance with God's standards. He wasn't a phony. He wasn't practicing his good deeds to be seen by others. He quietly and consciously obeyed God even when people weren't looking. We're told that he was devout. That word can also mean careful. It has about it the idea of reverent. And here's the takeaway. It means that Simeon wasn't careless about his spiritual life. You know, it's easy to skim over verse 25 and to sort of just move quickly on to the following events. But I don't want us to do that. Because I want to suggest the fact that Simeon is called here righteous and devout suggests that he had been engaged in a lifetime of cultivating these disciplines. Listen, no one accidentally becomes righteous and devout. It takes time, it takes work, it takes effort. And the key to Simeon's righteousness was in light of the fact that he viewed himself towards God as a humble servant. You say, where do you get that? Drop down, if you would, to verse 29. When Simeon takes the child in his arms and he praises God, notice what he says. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You see that word Lord? It's a unique word. It's found only ten times in the New Testament, and half of those ten times are in reference to God. It's the word from which we get the English word despot from. And it means absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. In other words, Simeon saw God as the sovereign Lord who had prepared his salvation and had graciously allowed Simeon to see it. And in view of the fact that Simeon uses this particular word, I want to suggest that Simeon had a high view of God and a humble view of himself. He saw himself as a slave. Slave Slaves have no right. Their only obligation is to obey. And again, think about the time in which Simeon lived. The Jewish religious leaders were largely political and not at all concerned about spiritual things. Their interest was in themselves and how they could get ahead. God had been silent for 400 years. Israel had been oppressed by one foreign power after another during those long centuries, and even now they were ruled by a corrupt ruler named Herod. We talked about him last week. And given that, it would have been very easy for Simeon to get caught up and say, you know, where is the promise that God has given to us, for us as people? He could have easily been a cynic. He could have easily been a doubter. 
but instead he was righteous and devout. Listen, I want to suggest if we put our hope in Christ, we must take care to live righteously, and we have to view God as our sovereign master and Lord, and we are as his slaves. And what we then do is we comb God's word to determine how he wants us to live, how he wants us to walk with him every day. Friend, to put your hope in Christ means to live righteously, but secondly, I'm going to suggest that it also means to live expectantly. To live expectantly. Verse 25 says that he was looking and waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for that time referenced by Isaiah the prophet when he said that he would come and comfort his people and remove their sins by sending the Messiah. How long had Simeon been looking? Friend, all of his life. And it would have been so easy for him to have said, you know, I'm just, I'm just tired of waiting. Generations have come and gone and these promises have never been fulfilled. Why should I expect that it will happen in my lifetime? Let me ask you this morning, do you live expectantly? When it comes to your prayers before God, do you expect God to answer your prayers? And are you then surprised when he does? And think, oh, must just be luck. You know, in the words of John Calvin, no. Now, you and I need to expect God to work. Let me ask you as well, do you expect the Lord to return soon? No, we believe that he could come at any moment. You say, well, Doug, it's been 2,000 years and it hasn't happened yet. Friend, he could come. And you and I lead to live with an expectancy that he could come at any moment. And I'm not suggesting we set dates, but... I like what Dr. Walford used to say when I was a student at Dallas Seminary. He would often be asked, he was an expert in prophecy. He would often be asked, Dr. Walford, is Jesus going to come soon? You know, look at all the signs that seem to be fulfilling these things. And Dr. Walford would just simply say, well, God's just rearranging the furniture right now. And that's true. Listen, people of hope live expectantly, waiting on God to fulfill his promises. But let me suggest thirdly, to hope in Christ means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice in verses 25, 26, and 27, three times over, the Holy Spirit is mentioned? We're told that the Holy Spirit was upon him. We're told that the Holy Spirit revealed the truth to him by the Spirit. And then finally, he was moved by the Spirit to go into the temple. And what I want to suggest here is that here was an Old Testament saint living before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and yet he probably lived more in the fullness of the Spirit than most Christians do today. You know, are you living this morning in the fullness of the Spirit? If God were to withdraw His Spirit from you, He's not going to do that, but if He were, would you even notice? Would your lifestyle be any different if he pulled out of the equation? 
You know, we've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we've been in Galatians 5, and we're going to talk about the final section there in chapter 5 when we wrap things up of chapter 5 in Galatians 5 uh, on January 5th. But what does it mean to be living in the fullness of the Spirit? It means to depend on Him consciously for everything you do. You depend on Him to get you through temptations. You ask for His insights into His Word. You rely on Him for the right attitude in the midst of trials. You seek Him for wisdom and difficult decisions. You live in the power of the Spirit. And your life, because of that, is marked by hope. Paul wrote in, first, in Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy, peace, and hope are the opposite of depression, anxiety, and despair. And so what we do is we live with hope. We live with confidence. Doesn't mean that we're going to have a trouble-free life. Doesn't mean that it's available only to those who have a certain personality type. The question you and I need to ask and answer is this. Are we living in the fullness of God's Spirit? So that our lives are characterized by a joy and a peace and an abounding hope. Friend, if you're lacking in these things, what you need to do instead of getting all depressed is you need to get on your knees every day and ask God to fill you and control you and empower you with His Spirit so that you'll be a person of hope. Friend, to hope in Christ means to live righteously, expectantly, and in the power of the Spirit. Secondly, I want to suggest that those who hope in Christ will be rewarded with, first of all, an understanding of the things of God. We will be rewarded. Look at verse 27 and following. I'm in Luke 2. It says, moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took that child in his arms and he praised God and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Let me suggest that those who hope in Christ are rewarded, first of all, with an understanding of the things of God. And Simeon knew this truth, not just intellectually, but experientially. You know, I'm always amazed at the people who really know the Bible, but they only know it intellectually. They never apply it to their lives. I think the finest illustration of that, from the Christmas story at least, is when the Magi come to Jerusalem, King Herod calls for the chief priests and the scribes to discover when they ask the question, where is he that is born King of the Jews? And Herod freaks out and he calls in the religious leaders and he says, Where, where's this king going to be born? And you know what? They knew the answer to the question, but they never went to see the king. That just is a head popper for me. 
I mean, that blows me out of the water. When the revelation was given to the shepherds, what did they do? It says they hurried off in haste. They went. And now this godly man who had been waiting on God for this very event, he understood the truth of God and he holds that child in his arms and he realizes that this is the Lord's promised anointed one. And he knows that not everyone's going to welcome him. He says that there are going to be some, and we know this from Isaiah the prophet, that this child would be for Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. But Simeon discerned the reality of who this child really was. One commentator said this, and I loved his words. He said, Simeon discerned beneath the outward forms of Jewish piety, their love of human glory, their hypocrisy, avarice, and hatred of God, and he perceives that this child will prove the occasion for all this hidden venom being poured forth from the recesses of their heart. We feel that this old man knows more about the moral condition of the people and their rulers than he has in mind to tell. Friend, he understood the truth of God. And you know what? When he had that understanding, you know what it gave him? It gave him a stability and an endurance. And he wasn't affected by the occurrence, the current evil around him. But I want to suggest that that's the kind of attitude you and I need to have. We need to know God's word, not just academically. Again, it just grieves my heart, the number of people that know the Bible so well Backwards and forwards. But they only know it intellectually rather than experientially. We need to be careful and diligent students of God's Word. But it can't just be academic. Secondly, let me suggest that those who hope in Christ are rewarded with the fulfillment of their godly desires. You know, Simeon was waiting expectantly expectantly, eagerly to see the Messiah. You know, probably every time a young couple would come into the temple courtyard, he would kind of walk over there, pull the blanket away and say, oh, look at that cute little boy. Thank goodness he's got his mommy's nose. He's got his daddy's ears. Beautiful child. And every time he looked, he he was expectantly waiting for God to confirm to him that that was the promised Messiah. And he was expectantly looking for that. And one day, his desires were fulfilled. As God prompted him and said, this is the one. This is the one. And what was his response? He said, I'm now ready to die because I've seen this child. My godly desires have been fulfilled. Can I just remind you of a basic truth in God's Word? That if you have godly desires, those desires will be met. 
Proverbs 10.24 says, The desire of the righteous will be granted. Psalm 34.10 says, They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And finally, Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Friend, would you dismiss from your mind that God's a a stingy curmudgeon who's not going to give you the desires of your heart? Now, please, a word of caution is in order here. It's not the desires of our heart. It's really the desires of a heart that beats for God's will in our life. Right? He grants the desires of the righteous. He grants the desires of of those who seek the Lord. Those who walk uprightly. Those who delight in the Lord. Those who have as the focus of their prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, he gives us the desires of our heart when our heart's desires are in line with his desires. And when they're not, we're going to find ourselves frustrated. But thirdly, let me suggest those who hope in Christ will be rewarded with a readiness for their death. I love that. Look at verse 29. This is so good. It says in verse 29, as he takes that child in his arm, he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You know, the picture here in the original is of a sentinel being relieved of his watch. Simeon was like a soldier. He was like a sentinel. And he was watching like a soldier would watch for the Messiah all of his life. And now that he's seen the Messiah, he's ready to be relieved of his duty and go home. He was ready to die in peace. Friend, you're not ready to die until you've seen Jesus. And I don't mean see him literally. I mean seeing him in the sense that your heart has been opened and your mind has been opened to see Jesus Christ for who he really is, the Savior who came and offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. The one who covered your sins with his shed blood. And when you, when you know that in your life, you know what you're ready for? You're ready to live another 60 years or 60 hours or 60 minutes or 60 seconds. And you're ready to die in peace. Yesterday, Connie and I had the great blessing of taking communion to one of the precious saints here in our church family who's dying of cancer. And there were six of us there. She had asked three of her friends to be there. As I was sharing scripture and, and we sang, we sang Tim. But as we, were, as we were sharing scripture and singing together and observing the Lord's table, she looked at me and she said, I'm not at all afraid to die. And I thought, what a way to live. She's 93 years old and she's ready to die in peace. Richard Baxter was a pastor who lived in the 15th century and he wrote a book entitled The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And this is what he said in that marvelous volume. He said, He that fears dying must be always fearing 
because he hath always reason to expect it. And how can that man's life be comfortable who lives in continual fear of losing his comfort? Listen, when you've seen the Messiah, as Simeon did, you're able to die in peace. But you know, how can we be sure that this hope is not going to disappoint? Well, I think the answer is found in that the Christ we hope in is God's promised Savior. He's the promised Savior. And let me just point out four things in regards to him. First of all, we're told that he was born without sin, but he identified with sinners. You say, Doug, where exactly do you get this? Well, friend, if you look at the previous verses in verse 21, you find that Jesus, even though he was sinless, went through the rite of circumcision according to the law. And in doing so, he identified himself with Abraham's household. This was the covenant people of God. And through that act of circumcision, it was a picture of God cutting away the sinfulness of his heart so that we are set apart unto him. When Jesus, through the act of circumcision, identified with the nation of Israel, which was a nation of sinners. That's the reason he was baptized. So that he could identify himself with the sinful people of his day. Identify himself with the people he came to redeem. Secondly, he was born to save people from every nation and from every, every sin. Every sin that they could commit. God chose the nation of Israel as the means to bring salvation to all the earth. Jesus was the light of God's revelation to the Gentiles who were outside the covenant people of God. And when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, he opened it up to the Gentiles as well. Gentiles could have gotten saved in the Old Testament as well, of course. But now it was open to any and all. And friend, the glory of the gospel is that wherever it goes, no matter how primitive or pagan the culture, when people believe in Jesus, their lives are transformed. And that's what Simeon's saying here. But thirdly, he was born to bring judgment to those who oppose him. Friend, that's what verse 34 is all about. Where he says in verse 34, when he's speaking to Mary, he says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Friend, he was born to bring judgment to those who opposed him. Let me state the obvious. For men to fall, they must first be standing. And what Simeon is saying here is that those who view themselves upright before God in their own merit are going to be those who stumble. They're going to fall over the truth of Jesus because they refuse to acknowledge their sinful condition. Jesus' coming brought opposition from the proud because he revealed their proudful hearts. What Jesus is saying here, as Simeon rather is saying, is that just as the sun rises to give us light, it also casts a shadow. And so Christ's coming brings salvation, but it also brings judgment to those who refuse to submit. And the fourth and final point is that he was born to bring salvation through his death. 
He says in verse 35 that Mary's soul is going to be pierced through. I think this is a prophetic reference to the anguish that Mary would feel as she witnessed the crucifixion of his son. And he's telling Mary, Mary, your son is going to come here and he's going to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. You say, well, Doug, what's exactly the point of this? It's simply this. If you're here this morning trusting in your own goodness to get you into heaven, you're going to fall on the day of judgment. But if you put your trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is God's only Savior, you'll be welcomed into God's holy presence one day. The question that I have to ask and answer is, is Jesus Christ your Savior this morning? Do you have a, a life of hope and confidence and assurance? that is separated from your circumstances? During World War II, some American prisoners in a German concentration camp secretly received word that the Allies had won the war. In fact, they heard about it before the Germans did. And during those three days, their circumstances were no different. They still suffered all the privation that they had gotten used to. Little food, sleeping conditions were deplorable. It was a seemingly hopeless situation. But you know what? Because they knew that victory had been secured, their attitude changed dramatically. And friend, that's the way it is with Christmas. That was the way it was with Simeon. Victory and liberation had been assured. So the question, again, that I have to ask and answer, have you answer is, have you put your hope and your trust in, in Jesus Christ? He's won the victory over sin and death and hell. And if you'll put your hope and your trust in Him and Christ alone, you'll not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this wonderful example of Simeon. Thank you, Lord, that he was one who, who stood true he believed in the promises of God. He chose to live his life righteously, expectantly, and in the power of the Spirit. He understood the things of God, and you fulfilled his godly desires, and there was, because of that, a readiness for death. We pray that that would be true of all of us here this morning. We pray, Father, that you would just stir the hearts of those who might be here without Jesus. May they come to know him as their Savior. We pray your blessing upon us having heard these truths this morning, where we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.